Hi, welcome to church today. The message you're about to listen to came from a recent gathering at our church. Be encouraged as you enjoy this message. Amen. How are we doing? Are we all good? That's about three people, honestly. How, how are we doing? Are we good? <clears throat> if ever there was a day to be good, um, today is the day. At the same time, if ever there was a place where you're not so good, how about you find yourself here at church? Um, we, we, we obviously, sometimes we, we harp on about these Christianese sayings that we must always be um, on top and still rising, blessed and highly favoured, but life is tough. Amen? Okay, maybe just the three of us, we've got some tough stuff. Maybe the rest of you have figured this stuff out and you're going to be preaching next week. Um, <clears throat> but no, generally, like, life is tough. But where else would we find hope and comfort if it be not in the house of God? So, um, again, it is a privilege to, um, to share today. <laughs> when pastor text me, I'd be like, oh, Easter Sunday. Try to avoid the fact that it's Easter Sunday. That gives, you know, brings a bit of pressure <laughs> in your head. But um, the message is still the same, isn't it? Whether it's a Sunday, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, um, a good day or a bad day, the message of hope and truth is still the same. We're going to just dig into a bit of that. Um, let me pray first. Father, I give you praise and I give you glory. I thank you. <clears throat> that the truth of your gospel resonates throughout this, this world today. That actually today, let it be that the most dominant message of all the messages being put out is the message of your resurrection, Jesus. That one who came to die lived and lives evermore. And because of that, because he lives, we can face tomorrow, as the songwriter said. <clears throat> Indeed, because he lives, we can face today. We were able to face yesterday. You are the reason that we made it to this point, and you're the reason why we make it beyond. If it be not for you, where would we be? And so, Holy Spirit, as your word is opened up, as we begin to dig into it, let this be the truth that you breathe on, that you cause to come to life. Let it be that you work upon the hearts of each and every person who listens to the message, not only just those who are here in person, but those who listen on Spotify, Apple, playlists, whatever. <clears throat> that, Father, they too would receive the daily bread that you have for us here. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. This is worthless if you're not involved. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, in true teacher fashion, I do have a PowerPoint to assist me today. Um, Liz, if you would be able to... Oh, there we go. Look at that. <clears throat> um, there's a dual reason for me having the PowerPoint. Not only because I, I want to help those who may be more visual learners in the room, Okay, those who may not always enjoy listening to someone rat on for an hour, hour 15, or three hours like Pastor Rod does. Um, 
Listen, Elder Deji's getting close to that. So I see you smiling. <laughs> you're, you're getting close to that. Um, but also because I'd rather have a, a, a Sunday where everyone can switch off and listen. You know, we spend a lot of time in church working. I know Liz and Jonathan, they do so much work. And even when the message is going out, they're still working. They're still typing away and making sure every scripture is put up. So today we're going to give them a little bit of time off just to soak and enjoy the message, okay? So I'm going to try to control it from here. Um, quick check to double check it's working. Yep, it is. Um, today we're going to talk about the reward of sonship. We're going to spend a lot of time in the book of John, okay? A lot of time in the book of John. There's a reason for that. Um, the context of, of the book of John and, and all his writings, for those who don't know from a um, historical perspective, turn to your neighbor and say, let's have a quick history lesson. Guys, I didn't hear you. Come on. There we go. Come on. I need, I need it. I need the help. Let's have a history lesson. Thank you, Pastor Rod. So John, uh, by, all, by all means, if you do a bit of research, he wrote a lot of his stuff. Um, they were the last books to be written. And actually, the Gospel of John and, and John 1, 2, and 3 were written after the book of Revelation, many, be, uh, many scholars believe. The second level to that is that many scholars also believe that John, having lived through the birth of the church, now he's you know, getting a bit older in his age, He's seen the direction which the church is moving in and wanted to make sure that there was like a plumb line that we can anchor ourselves on. So, obviously Jesus dies in AD 33, um, there were thereabouts. This is now maybe AD 80, AD 85. So we've had 50 years of the church. Now this church has been going for 30 years plus. Now, imagine all the different... Today is the 34th... Even more pressure. <laughs> Thanks, Pastor. So today is the 34th anniversary of the inception of this church. Okay. Yeah, there's a round of applause. <clears throat> now, imagine the ups and downs that this church has been in, just in 34 years. We once had X amount of people, then we've had this amount of people, then we've had this. We've had different worship leaders, different pastors, different leadership, different directions, different dispensations, different um, outpourings and moments that we've maneuvered through. And okay, now the Lord's taken us here, now he's taken us here. And that's just with us. Imagine if this was a global entity. Imagine if it was uh, moving at the rate where 3,000 could be added to the church in one day, if not more. But imagine the logistical issues faced on that front. Imagine if, you know, uh, Bishop Silas, not the one in the Bible, but Bishop Silas of Cyrene starts to preach something which is a little bit erroneous, a little bit off. All of a sudden we have different ideas popping up over those 50, 60, 70 years, which may need a John to just reset. But the reason why he could do this was because he had discovered th something which he placed in John 8, verse 32, 
where it says that the truth, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. That was Jesus speaking. The word there for to know is the word genosko, and it means to have experience of having lived life out with. John was the last remaining person on the face of the planet who had experience of the living with the truth. So when we read the book of John, it is the final expression of any single person on the face of the planet who actually knew Christ. Peter was gone, James was gone, Matthew was gone. So this is the last recorded words of someone who actually knew him. Not only one who knew him, but one who, as the scripture tells us, he laid his head upon his breast. He had a very intimate relationship with the Christ. Or as we know, he was one of those like inner sanctum, the three. But even more so than that, there are indications throughout the book of John, and we'll look at some of them, that he definitively had a definitive relationship with Christ, different to anyone else. And he was the last person to write. Now, God doesn't do anything by accident. The Holy Spirit obviously is leading this writing. What did John see? Maybe John saw in seed form what began to happen over the next 2,000 years of Western theology. Within 200 years of John writing, uh, Christianity was adopted by the Roman Empire. Sorry, I did say it was a quick history lesson. It's a bit longer than quick. Christianity was adopted by the Roman Empire, and all of a sudden the political um, ambitions of the church began to surface. And so the message was compromised. Because as we know, when Christ was talking to his disciples, he was like, I didn't come to overthrow a king in the way that you think I am. He, Christ had no political ambitions in that sense. However, as soon as the persecuted became those in power, now the church had a political arm, which gave rise to the Catholic Church and gave rise to much of the theology which was adopted even with the Protestant Church in 1500 and so on and so forth. So since that time, there has been a constant need for reformation. Okay, those of you who may know Martin Luther and what he pinned onto the, the church in Hamburg or something like that. There's been a constant need to reset the theology, reset the thinking. Because when a church decides, and I'm speaking in general terms, when the church decides to pursue political ambition, pursue uh, political influence above moral influence, we lose our right to be the moral authority in society. Which is why now the Archbishop of Canterbury, bless his soul, only gets rolled out maybe two, three times a year. A couple sound bites and put him back in the cupboard. No voice. No true power. Because the revelation that came from one who had walked with him was diluted, manipulated, compromised as the church began to walk into something that Christ never ordained it to. Okay? But the words of John are still here. C. Baxter Kruger, um, a great theologian, he's got loads of stuff on YouTube. I encourage him to I encourage you to listen um, <clears throat> and watch some of his teachings. He says this, he says, We grew up with a God watching us from a distance with a disgusted heart. Okay? 
And what he was speaking about is this idea that began to evolve over the, over the 2,000 years that there was a difference between Jesus and the Father. That the Father was this big, bad bully, full of anger, full of wrath, who wanted to strike you down should you even think about looking at a woman with lust. And Jesus was the one going, ah, stop, 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 remember, remember. So we inherently, and you may remember from some of your Sunday school teachings, maybe even when you got saved, you got saved out of the fear of hell as opposed to the faith in his love. That's my story. I remember the day I got saved, March 31st, 2003. The guy was preaching about hell. And he looked to the back. He said to all of us, all us young, young folk on the back, he was like, if you die tonight, would you end them? <laughs> you know? That's my story. And for many years, that dictated how I then perceived God. <clears throat> What's the first four words of the Bible? Let's see, you know, Genesis 1. In the beginning, God. How many of you, when you read that, do you think Jesus? How many of us think the Father? More than Jesus. If we're being honest, many, most of us will probably go, in the beginning, God, and we think of God the Creator, Father. What does John begin his, what does John begin his gospel with? John 1, in the beginning, was the word. So he began to heal a disparity that hadn't even shown up yet. He wanted to show us that Jesus and the Father were one and the same. If you see them as different, they will interpret how you relate to them. So Jesus is the creator. It's, there, there were hints all throughout the scripture because in the book of Isaiah, it says, and he shall be called, and they called him everlasting father. That always used to confuse me. Like, but you're talking about the son. But if you study John and literally just read it, once you've read it, keep reading it. Read it again, read it every year, read it once a month, whatever you need to do. You began to realize that the two are one and the same, the three are one and the same. Okay, and I'm not here to give you a, a detailed analysis of the Trinity, because to be honest, I don't have a detailed analysis of the Trinity. But what I do know is that they are one and the same. And it's important for us to have that, because like I said, Western theology gave us that split. And many of us grew up in churches where we had that split. That's why, just even a simple exercise, in the beginning God created, you most of us think of the Father. If anything, we think of Jesus coming after. But John starts, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. That word there with, the word pros, or pros, um, P-R-O-S, is not that he was sitting next to him, which is the kind of conventional idea we have, <clears throat> that Jesus was sitting next to the Father, it's like two of them side by side, right, now we're going to rule and reign this universe. No, it's face to face. Again, it's a completely different um, revelation of the relationship they had. So what we have now, and there's a teaching which is sweeping through the earth, and thankfully, and something you, know, you guys always hear me talk about is it's beginning to be known as beloved identity. Okay, Beloved identity, the likes of a Damon Thompson, C. Baxter Kruger, um, 
Bill Johnson, Mike Bickle, they all have these messages about the identity. It's called beloved identity, okay? So what did John discover? He discovered a truth that the other gospel writers didn't, okay? What is John referred to in the Bible? As a disciple whom Jesus loved. Where is he, where is he um, described as that? In his own book. He said that about himself. So what did he discover? He discovered that it was far more important to be known by virtue of his relationship with Jesus than any other means of identification, including his own name. His identity was rooted in love. It was more important writing the final book to ever be written in the canon of the Bible for him, he said, the most important thing I can convey to you from my lived experience with Christ is not that he called me John. It's that he loved me. I am the disciple whom Jesus loves. Say it. <clears throat> if ever there be a prayer that I pray every morning, that'll be, that's one of them. Now, my name, David, it does mean loved by God, so I kind of got a bit of a you know, head start. <laughs> I am the disciple whom Jesus loves. And that is the, the essential message of, of the Bible, isn't it? The love of God. It's the unveiling of the love of God. It's the love letter from the father to his child explaining his pursuit of him. It's important that we realize this. Um, these are a few quotes I have. Um, regarding this whole beloved identity Mike Bickle says this all of God's judgments are aimed at that which interferes with love is God a judge? yes what does he judge? he judges everything in your life that interferes with love so if there be let's say work Say you have placed your work, <clears throat> your career on a pedestal, and that's your identity. Your identity is rooted in your workplace. This is what I do for a living. This is how much money I make. This is how I'm able to provide for my family. I'm such a good husband. I'm such a good wife because I bring in this amount of money. If that mentality interferes with your receipt and, and your understanding and continuous revelation of the love of God, that's where he comes to judge. And it could be like what happened with me a few years ago where he asked me to go part-time. I went part-time and I thought, yes, I can do more music. And no more music came in. So instead of going part-time to do more music, I actually went part-time and it meant I spent more time with God. And then I was worrying about my money. <clears throat> I was like, oh, I've gone part-time, but I'm not making more for music. What was the point? Because now I can't afford X, Y, Z. I can't provide. And he used that to show me that I'd idealize my workplace and my check that I get on the X amount of every month, <clears throat> I'd idealize that above him being my shepherd. So he came to judge it. That has to change. And when I went, and I was only part-time for a year, and actually when I went back, I went to a role which was even higher than the one I left. So my paycheck went up. But now I was able to receive the abundance without going, 
it's all in there and actually say it's all up here. And it's a life lesson that I would pass on to my kids, I'd pass on to anyone that asks me about provision. Just make sure you know where it's coming from. Today, what about when the pandemic hit and all your gigs got cancelled? It's fine. Because two years previously, I'd learned that my work wasn't the source of my money. When the pandemic hit and all my gigs got cancelled, okay, he's just going to have to figure it out. I remember I lost like 750 quid in a day. Just boom, three gigs, bam, bam, bam. Whew, okay. Cool. And then two months later, someone called me and said, hey, could you do this job for me? A thousand pounds. Great. He just finds a way to get it to you because finally I'd realized that it wasn't the work that I should celebrate. It was the shepherd and the provider behind it. God will, not, God will tolerate nothing in us that is not of love's kind. I don't even know who said this. I've just heard it as a quote multiple times. If he sees anything in you that's not of love, that needs to go. Yes, he is patient. Yes, he is merciful. But it needs to go. All other disciples were called by name. John only gives a promotion to his self-identification. That's arrogant in our culture. I'm the disciple whom Jesus loved. But it's humility in the kingdom because he chose for his relationship to take precedence over his name. That's Damon Thompson there. So where do we start? <clears throat> this this gospel message. You know, it's Easter Sunday. Where, where, did, where does the gospel message start? I guarantee if you ask 100 Christian, Christians what the starting point of the gospel story is, they will say mankind and our sinful nature. Guarantee you this. But I submit to you, taken from Ephesians 2, which tells us that God, because of his great and wonderful and intense love for us, sent his son to die. Because it says that in there, that actually the starting point of the gospel is not mankind and our sin, the starting point of the gospel is the love of God. Do you follow? The starting point of the gospel story and the gospel message and the life that we live is not our sinful nature. It's actually the love of God. We see it in Eden. Before Adam sinned, he was caught up in this love um, dance, the perichoresis, which I've mentioned before. This love dance where him and, 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 and God would walk in the cool of the night, the intensity of fellowship. That's where the story actually starts. But again, Western theology has tricked us into thinking that it starts at sin. Because if I can convince you that your story starts at sin, I can convince you to be a performance-based Christian. which is complete anti to what the scripture says you should be. So the unveiling of the gospel, not only through scripture, but as seen and witnessed in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the unveiling, the unveiling of the love of God. Okay. It's interesting, though, there's a little aside that the Lord gave me a few days ago, which completely blew my mind. Do you remember the scripture in Galatians 3 where it says that God preached the gospel to Abraham? 
Yeah, it's, it's, in, it's in there, trust me. Okay? It talks about how God preached the gospel to Abraham. What do we say? So the gospel is the unveiling of the love of God. So what was the message that was preached to Abraham? The love of God. What's Abraham known as? The father of... Yep, you guys are still with me. <clears throat> say again, he's the father of... And faith worketh by... Isn't it interesting that the father of faith was also the same one who had the love of God preached to him in this gospel? I believe that Abraham, I haven't studied it out, it was only two days ago I heard this from Holy Spirit. I believe that Abraham had such an intense revelation of the love of God. That's why his faith was such that even at age 90, he was still telling Sarah to get to bed early because we've got some stuff to do. Even at 95, he's like, Sarah, come. Tonight might be the night. What does the scripture say? Even when it was past her to be of childbearing age. Still. Because every day it is revelation of the love of God. It's not just any old gospel. It's not this gospel rooted in sin. It's, it's no, I love you with everything I have, Abraham. Bang, faith. <clears throat> Because why wouldn't you want to trust in someone who's declared their undying love for you? If the gospel that was preached to him was the gospel of sin, damnation, judgment, hellfire, you might just, okay, I trust you, but if I mess up, hey. <laughs> Abraham messed up. Abraham lied. Abraham didn't always get everything right. But he's known as the father of faith, and I believe that faith was rooted in an intense and continuous, that's a key word there, continuous revelation of the love of God. Right, back to John. <clears throat> so Western theology has limited our understanding of Jesus' mission on earth to merely just saving us from the clutch and wages of sin. Okay, and I say Western because if you look at some of the Eastern teachings, the Eastern fathers, they kept hold of some of these truths a little bit longer than the Roman Empire and the Romanization of the Christian faith, which is the basis of Western theology. <clears throat> okay, so now while this is a crucial foundation to have laid, it begs the question, why did he not just go to the cross straight away? If it was all just about saving you from the clutches of sin, then that could be done by going to the cross. Why did he not just do it in the first six months? Why three years? What did that achieve? Right. History lesson done. Let's go to some scripture. John 1, 14 to 18. Oh, that is my phone. What did I say? John 1. So it says here, <clears throat> in verse 14 to 18, And the word of God, the word Christ, became flesh, human incarnate and tabernacled, fixed his tent of flesh, and lived a while amongst us. And we actually saw his glory. 
his honor and his majesty, such glory as an only begotten son receives from his father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has priority over me, for he was before me. He takes rank above me, for he existed before I did. He has advanced before me, he is my chief. Verse 16, for out of his fullness, abundance we have all received, all had a share and we were all supplied with, one grace after another, spiritual blessing upon spiritual blessing, even favor upon favor and gift upon gift. For while the law was given through Moses, grace, unearned, undeserved favor and spiritual blessing and truth came through Jesus Christ. No man has ever seen God at the time, at any time. The only unique son or the only begotten God who is in the bosom, in the intimate presence of the Father, he has declared him. He has revealed him and brought him out where he can be seen. He has interpreted him and he has made him known. Those three years were crucial because not only was he here to save us from the clutches of sin and, and deliver us, give us that fire insurance, but it's also because he was here to reveal the Father, I love this, to bring him out where he can be seen. That reminds me of like a, a, a play. The main act, the main character, here on stage, I present to you, the Father. <laughs> that which you'd heard before. That's why Jesus spent so much time saying, ah, you've heard it said, but I say unto you. That's why uh, Matthew 5 and the Beatitudes are so key. Blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are the meek. Because he begins to reset the imaginations of the Jewish people and consequently us. Even after 2,000 years of slightly off-base erroneous teaching, maybe even more so erroneous in some parts, there's still, in the Bible, the perfect portrait of the Father. What does it say in Hebrews 1? It's not in my notes. Uh, uh, in different times, in various times, uh, God has spoken to us through various voices. Uh, I'm paraphrasing. But now, Jesus. He is the perfect image, the outline radiance of the Father. If you want to see what the Father is like, Jesus. There is no dichotomy. There is no disparity between the two. There is no difference. There is no gap Jesus, as Bill Johnson says, is perfect theology. If you want to know what the Father looks like, what he says about a woman caught in the very act of adultery, read John 8, because it's there. When Jesus laughed, it was the Father laughing. When, he, when something pleased him, you know when he said, um, when it talks about, and he was astonished by the faith that someone has shown. That's the Father. The father was astonished by the faith shown by this particular individual. Now we know from the book of John, chapter 21, that there were so many more stories that are not even included here. So every single day for three and a half years, John was able to see the father. Indeed, I think it is later on in the book of John where um, someone said, I think it's Thomas, says, show us the father. And Jesus is like, have I not been with you all this time? Oh, what? <laughs> no, 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 I'm talking about the big guy. <laughs> you know, 
the guy up there. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Have I not been with you all this time? They dared to call him Abba. I, I've often said that one of the most powerful moments in biblical history is the moment that the disciples first heard Jesus pray. His reference to Yahweh, or El Shaddai, Adonai, as Abba, would have quite simply blown the minds of the Hebrew boys sitting with him. To depict the God that they had studied and heard about as one capable of desiring that level of intimacy was astonishing in the very least, and it sets the tone for the next three years of unveiling. Okay? You have to remember, by age 12, they knew pretty much everything they needed to know about God from a logistical, uh, mental ascent perspective. What Jesus gave them was the experiential. Again, it's that truth that sets you free. So everything that Jesus did and said was in the context of him being a son revealing the Father. Okay? We're going to go to John 17. Quick recap. This is my teacher coming out. So what do we look at? We look at historically, we understand that this is the last remaining person who had any sort of actual personal experience of Christ. These are the words that he was motivated by the Holy Spirit to put down. Okay, these are the memories he had. These, this is what was important for Holy Spirit to put forth. Even if you think about First John, because that was one of the last books written as well. In First John it says, remember, we have heard the message God is light, and in him, there's no darkness at all. Now, he's referring to the Father in that. So he's saying, look, doesn't matter what gets said after this point. Whatever happens for the next 2,000 years, whatever is said, this is the original message that we've heard. But if you look in the Gospels, there is no reference to that in the Gospels. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. But then John says... Father is light. Again, he's pairing the two. He said, please, if you ever hear anything from me, this is the message that we have heard. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. He is eternally good. So whenever that teaching pops up about him being this hateful, spiteful judge who just wants to throw us all in a lake, we can reject that because the last words that the Holy Spirit wanted in is this revelation of not only one that Jesus and the Father being one and the same, but the inherent nature of our God being one of love and goodness. <clears throat> now, I'm going to try to... I'm actually going to read all of John 17, or most of it. Um, this is Jesus praying... Okay, I think that's the night he got arrested. Um, this is his prayer. I call it the actual Lord's Prayer. There are so many corners in here. There are so many deep truths. So I'm going to do my best to hold back. I've studied this for about 10 years. <laughs> There's so much stuff in it. Anyway, when Jesus spoke these things, he lifted up his eyes to heaven 
what are these things he's talking about? John 13, or John 14 to 15, 16, where he talks about intimacy. I'm the true vine, talks about the Holy Spirit. So after he said all these things, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify and exalt and honor and magnify your son so that your son may glorify and extol and honor and magnify you. Just as you have granted him power and authority over all flesh, all humankind, now glorify him that he may give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life. Colon. One of the most important bits of punctuation that I've ever come across. This is the definition. Because if you ask me, 11 years ago, I would have said eternal life is life everlasting after I die. Jesus describes eternal life as this. It means to know, there's that word again, Janosko. He explains it this way in the Amplified. To perceive, recognize, become acquainted with, and understand. One day I'll teach on those four things that I call them the four stages of intimacy. Okay, to perceive from a distance, to recognize familiarity, become acquainted with a little bit of life, understand we are one. Okay. So this is eternal life. To perceive, recognize, become acquainted with and understand you, the only true and real God, and likewise to know him, Jesus, as the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah whom you have sent. I've glorified you down here on the earth by completing the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me along with yourself. Restore me to such majesty and honor of your presence as I had with you before the world existed. He's relating, he's talking about Genesis 1 there, before that. I have manifested your name. I have revealed your very self, your real self, to the people you have given me out of the world. That's me. I'm one of those that has been given unto Christ from out of the world. What has been revealed? His very self, the true self of the Father. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have obeyed and kept your word. Now at last they know and understand that all you have given me belongs to you. It's really and truly yours. For the uttered words that you gave me, I have given them, and they have received and accepted them, and have come to know positively, and in reality to believe with absolute assurance that I came forth from your presence, and they have believed and are convinced that you did send me. I'm going to jump down because this is... Verse 14. I have given and delivered to them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, do not belong to the world, just as I am not of the world. So I don't ask that you would take them out of the world, but that you will keep and protect them from the evil one. Why is that important? A lot of the, the, the Western theology began to speak about escapism. Soon and very soon, we are going to see the king. Soon and very soon, we are going to see the king. Just in case you didn't hear it the first two times. Soon and very soon, we are going to see the king. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. We are going to see the king. There are political ambitions around that and the reason for the Negro spiritual and I can understand why certain songs were sung when you're in chains. But still there was this, this continuous mantra around, I need to get off this planet. And even here in church, modern day church, 
You hear it so many times. Oh, it's getting so dark out there. He must be coming back soon. Which completely flies on the face of what Jesus prays here. He's like, yo, I'm not asking you to take them out. Just protect them. They are not of the world as I am not of the world. Verse 17. This is how we are protected. He says, sanctify them. Purify, consecrate, separate them for yourself. Make them holy by your truth. Your word is truth. Right, I'm going to jump down to verse 22. I have given to them the glory and honor which you have given me that they may be one even as we are one. <clears throat> so he says here in John 17, 22, the glory you've given me, remember we read it originally in John 1, I think it's verse 15, 16, or 14, sorry, where it says, he, we beheld his glory as of the only begotten Son of the Father. That glory is the one he references in John 17. It says, Father, you gave it to me, and I'm giving it to them. Why? So that they may be one. So he equates glory and oneness. So when we speak on the glory of God, it is acceptable, just because of what Jesus did here, to exchange that for oneness with the Father. So when we go from glory to glory, one level of glory to the next, could it not be said that we're going from one level of intimacy, one level of oneness with the Father to another? Another depth of oneness. Again, I just described earlier, I knew him from a distance. I perceived him as a shepherd, but now I understand him as a shepherd. Because I've seen his provision. I've experienced it. I have a truth that I don't just know up here in my head. I have a truth which I've experienced. I've lived life out with. I've walked with this truth. And that truth now has become so alive to me that it brings freedom. Freedom comes when truth has been experienced and lived life out with. That's why John could freely say, I'm the disciple whom Jesus loves. As bold and as arrogant as that might sound to you in 2022 in England, especially to the British, I am the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's how I'm going to refer to myself. If you ever see me in the book, don't call me by name, please. That's not who I am. I am the disciple whom Jesus loved. So Jesus is here. He says this incredible statement. I've given them the glory you gave me that they may be one even as we are one. So if we're going back to John 1, I've highlighted these key bits in John 1, 12 and 13. But to as many as did receive and welcome him, he gave the right, the authority and privilege to become children of God. That is, to those who believe in, adhere to, trust in and rely on his name, who were born, look at this, not of blood, natural conception, nor of the will of the flesh, physical impulse, nor of the will of man, that of a natural father, but of God. That is a divine and supernatural birth. They are born of God, 
spiritually transformed, renewed, and sanctified. So we have the authority and the privilege of being known as the children of God. The phrase there in the Hebrew is the phrase Benaiha Elohim, okay, son of God. It's different to the only begotten son of God. It's a, it more speaks of a direct creation of the father. And that's what it says here in verse 13. It's not of blood. It's got nothing to do with your lineage. Even in um, Hebrews, I don't know what chapter it is, but there's a scripture in Hebrews talking about um, Christ and his priesthood. He says he was a priest of the order of Melchizedek, not because it came from any sort of natural lineage, but because it was imposed upon him by the Father. Okay? So we have been given the authority and the privilege to be children of God, this direct creation of the Father. And remember, everything he said and did was in the context of him being a son revealing the Father. And this is why I believe his ministry began with an affirmation from the Father. Okay, Matthew 3 and 4. <clears throat> and Matthew 3 essentially is where Jesus is baptized, comes out of the water. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. The first affirmation wasn't that God showed that the you know, Holy Spirit showed up and you know turned the water into wine that actually wasn't the first aspect of his ministry recorded it was that he was the beloved of the father how many of us start our day with that as our confession because we have been elevated into sonship okay by virtue of us having believed in Christ. He said, if you believed in him, you've been given sonship. So you now can call yourself loved by God, the Dahavid, David. <clears throat> okay? Even that, I was telling my cousin the other day, talking about names. And for a number of years, I didn't like my name. I think I might have shared this before. Maybe I haven't. If I have... I'm going to share it again. Didn't like my name, didn't like my name, David. Because of the pressure, I felt like it carried, especially in a Christian setting, especially when you're a musician. Okay? I'm just going to be honest. I'd play, people would be blessed. They wouldn't know my name. They'd come speak to me at the end and be like, brother, I really, you know, your keys playing really blessed me. So what's your name? David. Oh, yeah, it makes sense. I was like, man... <laughs> Okay. And just from that one small conversation, repeated a million times, um, I literally began to have this inherent disdain for the name David. I'm being honest. To the point I said I'll never call my son David. So I said I would never, never bestow upon them the pressure grow up in a Christian household with this name. Because what if they're not gifted in worship? What if they're not? If they're all the stuff that we know about David, a man after God's own heart, what if I would hate for that to be, because I've lived under that pressure. And then one day God said to me, he said, you need to stop cursing your son. What? <laughs> he said, what's your name mean? I said, loved by God. He said, how many times has your name been called 
over the course of your life? I don't know. How many times? Millions. So how many times have my love for you been declared over you? Okay, so what are you saying? What are you saying? And he began to show me how he said, even those who are not believers, every time they say your name, you know what they're saying? Hey, you, loved by God, could you help me move this cabinet, please? <laughs> and that's where this whole beloved identity thing started. And I started to realize that every time someone has spoken my name, they referred to the love that God had for me. Even when I was messing up. Even the very people I was messing up with. I'm <laughs> in this situation. With them same people, hey, David, hey, love by God, what are you doing here? <laughs> in the midst of all the darkness, in the midst of all the doubt, in the midst of all the frustration, in the midst of all the tossing and turning, the, the ups and the downs, the stupidness that I got myself involved in. Hey, David, his love was constantly being, there's never been a day that his love has been declared over my life. Same for you. There has never been a day where his love hasn't been declared over your life. Think on that. bed there's never been a day never think about the worst day in your life even on that day the love of God has been proclaimed this is the one that I love in whom I'm well pleased this is the one I'm love in whom I'm well pleased So in 2017, those of you who know my story, um, December 23rd, 2017, when Jesus showed up in my front room and began to, to show me himself. After three, four months of me having this definitely spiritual ache I'd never experienced before in my life, and an ache in my heart, I need to know him. I don't know him. I said to Denise, I said, to anyone who spoke to me, <laughs> I just, I feel like I don't know it. I know the Father, I know the Spirit, but I just, Jesus, I, I need. <clears throat> so I rearranged things and I set aside some time and December, Saturday, September, uh, December 23rd, 2017, I'm in my front room in the chair that elevates. <laughs> Uh, I said three words, come Lord Jesus. I don't know how long I said it. And I, I know that the Lord has stopped me from remembering how long it was. Because I know people would want to, oh, well, I must do this for half an hour and I'll get the same results that David had. All I know is I had positioned my heart with just one simple request. I could have said it for five minutes. It could have been an hour. Trust me, time disappeared. Honestly, it was, it was the first time it's happened multiple times since. 
But this is the first time I was in the presence of God and time disappeared. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. And he walked into the room. And I'm sitting here, and he was probably just where that chair is there. And three words. Enjoy my pursuit. That's all he said. So I'm here saying, Lord, I want to get to know you. And his response, study how much I've pursued you. I'll put it here. Truth is found when you begin to define yourself by the Father's fascination with you. Truth is found when you begin to define yourself by the Father's fascination with you. 50 weeks later, almost to the day, I was leaving Pastor Ward's house and I had an encounter between his house and Oval Station, the tube station. I'm literally, it's crazy, <laughs> I was walking down the street and I'm literally having this encounter as I'm walking to the tube station. And I remember saying to the Lord, I said, Lord, I want to feel this every day of my life. So, like, this is just, I'm crying, I'm singing, I'm, yeah, I must have looked like a complete madman, but it was all worth it. And it was the latest in a long line of encounters. And I actually remember saying to him, as I walked into the station, Lord, how, I, I, I'm, I'm afraid that tomorrow I won't feel this then I'll lose what, what's happening to me. And you know what? There was a poster in the station which said, do not worry about tomorrow, live for today. I was like, which preacher was this? Someone somewhere in the marketing company had just preached the best message I had heard. I was like, I remember looking up, read it, and I laughed. I burst out laughing as I'm going down the escalator. And... God was like, see, I told you. Just live for today. That's what he means by daily bread. Come back tomorrow. I start every morning, every prayer, with the same three words that I started in December 2017. Come, Lord Jesus. Because I refuse, absolutely refuse, to do today the yesterday's bread. I refuse to try and take tomorrow on with what I learned last week Monday because that was for last week Monday that was for life up until that point in the week since then this has happened other things have happened I've learned this I've made mistakes I've turned left I've turned right I've gone up I've gone down I've done whatever has happened in life so it would be it'd be remiss of me to to use last week's revelation for today's situation that I sound like Pentecostal preaching now <laughs> but you understand what I'm saying it's, it's why would you do it? Have I got bored? No. 2017 is so what we're going into the fifth year. Not one moment has passed where I've ever turned around and said, ah, oh, what's the point? It's always new, okay? That's why when I put the book together, um, Diary of the Man He Calls Son, it was the summary of those 50 weeks. So the, the encounter I had on the way to, um, to the station from Parsons House is the last encounter here in the book. And the Lord said to me, as I was writing it on, on the phone, on my phone, he was like, 
read over your notes, summarize what have I been teaching you over these 50 weeks. So I read over it, and what he'd been teaching me? Sonship. And it started with, you are the righteousness of God in Christ. And I could, after 50 weeks, boldly say, I am a son of God. That's why it's called Diary of the Man He Calls Son. Because I but literally, I got to a point where I was like, you cannot convince me I'm not a son of God. That's who I am. Now we know 50 is the number of Jubilee in the scripture. So I had experienced my own Jubilee. I'd got to 50 weeks and now I had freedom. Why? Because the truth that I knew was the truth that I had lived with for all that time and I lived with still to this day. So this is where the cross now comes into play. The cross is gruesome. Let's not beat around the bush. It is gruesome to think about what took place on that day. It is torturous to imagine the suffering that took place on those wooden beams. But have you considered this? That woven into the vein of the bark is the story of his endless love towards you. The cross itself is gruesome to some, but it is also the greatest display of his fascination towards you. It is a marriage proposal on the highest hill. Choose me, he says. Choose oneness. Choose intimacy. The cross and the empty tomb was heaven's response to the request made by Christ that we might be one with God, that finally we could be sons. Remember, the night he got arrested, Father, the glory you've given me, I give to them that they may be one, even as we are one. God's response was, okay, just like we discussed, I'm going to need you to go to the cross. This is Ray Hughes. He's a better writer than I am. He wrote this and posted it a couple of days ago, so I just stole it. <laughs> when Jesus looked up from the cross, winds of doctrine were stilled. His eyes held the hidden silent wall of the whole world's pain. Man's definition of life and lofty language unraveled. Thoughts and theology lay lifeless in the sands of Golgotha the day that the Son of God lost eye contact with his Father. The power of that silence overpowered the dirges of death for hidden within the hush was a song that called all of humanity to rise and sing the melodies of life so now we have new definitions the gospel is and always has been more about reproduction than it is about production okay it was all about producing sons and daughters as opposed to producing workers who are great ushers or great evangelists, great teachers. That's all well and good. But the greatest teacher is the one who's humbled himself to learn to be a son. We don't change the world by filling up every seat in the church building. Revival is not a queue sneaking around the corner. Revival is a generation of sons and daughters of the living God finally displaying the life of one who is assured of their beloved identity. Okay, and say that again. Revival is a generation of sons and daughters of the living God who finally display the life of one who is assured of their beloved identity, purchased at the cross, secured in the new covenant of the empty tomb. It is they who have rule and reign in life. 
it is they who endure much persecution and yet still be called more than conquerors. It is they who will, from the shadow of Calvary, proclaim the truth of the gospel and see it followed by signs and wonders. We're redefining what revival looks like. And I'm all here for the stories of old, the tent meetings, the camp meetings, and I'm not saying there was anything wrong about that. But how about a generation of sons and daughters? How about instead of us being attracted to one man when the evangelistic anointing comes upon him and all of a sudden thousands of people are called into the building or called to Christ and called to salvation, which makes our jobs a bit easier because all we've got to do is invite our friends to church. How about we move beyond that and move to a situation where we can be the ones that are set afire set ablaze by this revelation of our sonship that even without having to invite you to church, something convicts you in your spirit. There are cities that need to be changed. There are villages that need to be changed. There are roads that need to be changed. If only a son and a daughter would rise up. If only someone who is so assured of their beloved identity that they can walk in and say, I am the disciple whom he loves. I am one who has been given the right and the privilege to be called the children, a child of God. And therefore, I say this happens and nothing else. So there's a new standard. There's a new standard of authority and, and power that has been released upon the earth. Because where before we might have had to do all this and work and, and wait for this one guy to come in and, and start healing thousands of people. Now we have a thousand people healing a thousand people. Ten years ago, I was praying, and the Lord said to me, I was praying, I was like, Lord, I, I really want that Benny Hinn anointed. The Bell Johnson, just the way they teach, the way they heal. I'd prayed it for years, the Benny Hinn anointing. He said, stop, do not disrespect me like that. What do you mean? Like, they are generals. He said, do not do that. He said, do you have an anointing? There's a scripture, Zechariah 7, I think, in the story with Joshua, the high priest. And the exchange that takes place, and there's a scripture there where it says, if you obey my commandments, I will give you a place in my presence amongst those who are already here. That's the scripture he gave me. So when, I was, when I've been on stage with some of those people that I was once praying for their anointing, the Lord said to me, I told you I'd get you here. But I had to go into my cave. I had to somehow find him daily to start every day with this come Lord Jesus cry, a refusal to accept anything that was from before. And I must have a fresh revelation today of what it means to be a child of God purchased by this, this gruesome, torturous cross and the beauty of the empty tomb. Thank you, Father. I was going to go to Romans 5, but I think I'm just going to go to one more thing. Um, can I borrow Deji, Kellen, Tommy, and Sat? Can I just borrow you at the front, please? <clears throat> this probably will be the last point before we do our communion. So just stand next to each other facing that way. Okay. Now, looking at this scene, we see young and old. Okay. 
Older. This, this is when the elder turns around to pastor and says, you know that kid? Kick him out. Um, we see young and older. We see youth and maturity. Right. Can you guys hold hands? Or embrace? Now, we see intimacy and proximity. From the outside looking in, we instantly recognize the relationship in that simple gesture. Now, if you were new to the church, this could be just four people that I've just called out, two kids, two adults. But as soon as they held hands, as soon as there was an embrace, you realize, oh, there's a relationship between the two. You may not have known that before, but now you know. In just one gesture, the embrace, the handheld. Now, if a stranger was to grab a child's hand, we would scream in outrage. Why? The stranger has not earned the right to a level of intimacy which the holding of hands indicates. Right? If a stranger holds Sam's hand, the outrage is because you don't, there is no knowing here. You have not earned the right to hold his hand. So don't do it. His father has the right. So when a stranger does it, it is a false intimacy on show. It's a parody of something special and something tender. Our father's jealousy burns when we give others the right to hold our hand instead of him. Why? Because work, your career, your boss, your manager has not earned the right. Your family has not earned the right. Life itself hasn't earned the right to be the one you cling to. Only he has earned the right to be called father, to lead, to guide, to protect, and to uplift. You guys can sit down. <clears throat> so what am I saying? Only one this is what we see at the cross. This is what we see with the empty tomb. Only one has earned the right to hold his hand. I cannot and I will not turn to anyone else because you didn't do what you did. You weren't there on that cross for me. Love you guys. You guys are a great church family. But I don't even trust you beyond I trust him. And I won't elevate church and churchianity above my revelation of the love of God. That's what I've done for years. I was safe and secure, quote unquote, in me going to church every Sunday, playing a mean bit of keys and the Holy Spirit sweeping through congregations across the world and seeing him move. That was my security until I met him. Denise said to me once, she said, she goes, but you know, you don't do all the stuff that you used to do. You don't do as many gigs. You don't do as many. I said, it's all worthless. I understand now when Paul says, it's all worthless. Because I was doing all that stuff across, I was traveling here, there, across all different places, and I didn't have him. So for all of that, I exchange it in, in a heartbeat. Because what I experienced on that day 
when I said, come Lord Jesus, and he walked in, he said, enjoy my pursuit. And for the first time, and the last time, because he's never stopped, I realized he's been holding my hand. Why? Because he earned the right. And that's the reality of his pursuit. Our last scripture is Romans 8, 32. Romans 8, 32 says, He who did not withhold or spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not also with him freely and graciously uh, graciously give us all other things? So what is the reward of sonship? All other things. Seek ye first kingdom of God and his righteousness and what? All other things will be added unto you. I said it before. I saw more healings in the first three months after my encounter in December 23rd than I'd seen in the ten years previously, five years previously. More in three months than I'd seen in five years. Because finally... The prayer that I prayed wasn't a prayer of me trying to work his arm. It was a prayer of a son requesting of his father that he show himself strong. So I need not scream at the wind and the waves because that's not what sons do. Sons just tell the wind and the waves, come on, you know better. Not now. Quiet. Stop this far, no further. The reward of sonship is all other things. So whatever you're pursuing in life, invest in the revelation of your sonship. And I guarantee you this, because I've lived it for the past four and a half years, all other things will be given unto you. And that, for me, is what the cross and the empty tomb is all about. Yes, I'm thankful that my sins have been forgiven. But I'm even more thankful that he calls me son. To this day, when I pray, I'm yet to hear him even call me David. He calls me son. He says, son, this scripture. Son, I want want you to talk about this. Son, let's discuss this. To this day. It simply is the greatest title ever conferred upon any human being to be called a son of God. Not, and it's not even about the reward. But it's when, everyone, when people look at me, when they hear me speak, they see one who's holding hands with the father. And all of a sudden you realize this kid in those shorts and the super dry t-shirt, oh, he's got a relationship. Oh, there's something different about that one. When you go into work on Tuesday, having enjoyed your bank holiday, 
oh, there's something different about this one. They must be holding hands with someone. When the scripture says, and it talks about faith, doesn't it? It talks about the leaning of the entire human personality and absolute trust and confidence in him. That's what, how it describes faith in the Amplified Bible. And I always remember the Lord showing me, it was like, this, this is how you look to the world. Now, if you saw someone standing like that in the road, you'd be like, you're about to fall over. What are you doing? Why are you leaning? Well, I can lean because I know who I'm leaning on. So I actually don't mind looking like this to the world because I know who I'm leaning on. I know who holds my hand because he calls me son. All other things. All other things. So if there be one community of believers in London, in England, in the world who decide to really pursue this Christian thing, let it be the one here in Clapham, Commonwealth Christian Fellowship, who decided as a group Instead of relying on one man to lead us into a promised land, how about an army of sons and daughters so fully persuaded? That's why the father said to Pastor Vod, he said, do not call it a small church. You can't. Because if you're a son, all other things have been given unto you. If all other things are beginning on to you, it makes no difference whether there's 30 of us or 300, because all other things have been given. We believe you've really enjoyed this message. For further information, visit www.commonwealthchurch.org and feel free to join us on any Sunday.